Hi, I'm Vicky Englert. I'm a data strategist and I work in data and government and uh, vulnerable communities. Hi, my name is Colin Bean, and this is The New Constructivist, a show about work. This show is my excuse to talk to all kinds of interesting people in different fields who give a glimpse of alternative ways of working. As a designer who's always worked in digital, one sector I'm very interested in in terms of social impact is civic tech, and I was excited to get the opportunity to speak to Vicki Englert. When I first started looking into civic tech in L.A. a few years ago, Vicki's name kept coming up. Vicky will help give a sense of what civic tech refers to exactly, beyond just being digital services for government, and will share what she's currently working on. She has great insight into both the big dynamics and dilemmas of public service work, as well as the ability to get in the weeds to talk about logistical obstacles and breakthroughs. In this interview, I also learned about her non-traditional backstory, which makes her even more of an inspiration. I think the culture and processes around civic tech can guide those working in consumer tech who are looking to be more ethical and inclusive. It also makes us think about who tech is really serving and who's being left out. It gives us a sense of the nuts and bolts of implementing big policy ideas and how people are serving their city, state, or federal government in ways we don't usually think about. So your work is very interesting, but it's also complex and in areas... I think most people, even tech people, don't know a lot of the details about. So can you help set the scene and perhaps define civic tech? Yeah, sure. I've been working in this space for a couple of years. I've done everything from working in an IT department at a city to working on data teams at startups that consumed and cleaned government data for customers for political campaigns. There's civic tech is a newer word that's being used to talk about the applications and technologies to serve communities, whether that the impetus for that that new technology has come from within government or from the community. The idea is that with technology, we, we can be more inclusive, which government, unlike business, has to serve everyone, not just a, you know, a niche market. So the idea is that, that we're being more intentional in the technology we develop. Similarly, there's GovTech is a phrase used a lot, and that's when uh, you're selling technology directly to government or it's the technology government is building directly. And civic tech is, is really just sort of a spirit thing that differentiates it from GovTech in that these ideals of inclusivity are, are sort of what drive that new sort of area versus GovTech is often really just about building to a procurement contract or a business that accidentally fell into selling to government. It was really just about growing a business. Yeah, so it sounds like GovTech is kind of the traditional bigger government contractor work. Do you have examples of companies that work in that space or technologies in that space? Yeah, there's a ton. There's, you know, the the big companies we know and use every day. You know, Google is selling G Suite app to government. Microsoft is selling everything from Microsoft Office to Dell selling, you know, computers by the thousands and hundreds of thousands to, to government agencies. And then there's a lot of companies that you've probably never heard of that are quietly, you know, selling really large contracts to the government for software and implementation. And those are those are companies like GCI and Oracle and Deloitte. Palantir is a, you know, an infamous one that that's people are seeing more of lately. And so compared to that, where would civic tech fit into that? It's everything. So yeah, when we talk about civic tech, there's, you know, if, if you Google it, there's way too many articles about defining civic technology oh, okay. as a phrase, a lot of arguments there. I think when we look at government, there's a lot people don't understand that's sort of how things work. 
And you see people enter this space who probably have tech skills, have an idea for a company, have an idea for fixing stuff. And then it's a really rough learning curve because working in government is really different. So there's some basics we could talk about with civics. So, you know, you have elected offices and then you have government who are the people who aren't elective, but, you know, are the people who are picking up your trash, who are, you know, setting up the websites where you register to vote and their paradigm and how they work and the pressures on them is very different from those that get elected. Um, we have different technology and, you know, different governance structures locally at the state level and at the federal level. And each of those has, you know, different kinds of pressures and budgets. And in your community, learning the difference between who, you know, is in charge of streets in your city might be a different agency in another city. Um, so there's a lot to learn about sort of who or what, you know, if you go to the state of California and you're looking for data on, you know, uh, health of individuals in the state of California, there's there's 12 different health departments at the state level. And, you know, you have to figure out even who you'd send the request to. And, and the way government is organized, they don't facilitate that for you. And a lot of what people are coming in is, you know, looking at government and some of the success we've seen in sort of Silicon Valley with, you know, user experience becoming a new expectation of a, of a consumer. Can we we bring that kind of consumer expectation into government and create better processes with the tools we have. And so you see everything from people running petitions for candidates to pledge to release data if they're elected, to people starting brand new companies to sell closed source software to government in civic tech. So it can be really anything. Yeah. So it sounds like it's taking some of what's been successful in Silicon Valley and for-profit tech, like user experience and perhaps agile, working, working faster, getting feedback from the audience and putting that into development. But it also can be very different from Silicon Valley, right? So because some people, it seems, get into this space thinking, I'm going to disrupt this or I'm going to fix this. And can you go into what's different? Yeah, so there's some hard lessons to learn when you come in, especially if you have this attitude of, oh, I could just fix that. Like, why don't they just do this? When you come in and you start to see, you know, the individuals who work for government are working at well over 100% of their capacity. They don't have the time and the bandwidth to look to improve a system because they've got years of backlogs of permits to deal with. When you build software for the government, you can't, you know, look at serving a small percentage of users. You have to include everyone. Your site has to be accessible. Your software has to be accessible for people with a range of disabilities, with a range of access to internet, you know, you have to learn to serve a much broader audience. And that's the kind of thing that would cripple, you know, a budget in an agile planning team that's sort of cutting off stuff that a lot of, you know, not a lot of people are going to use it. It's not important. In government, that feature might be tied to one of your most vulnerable users. And so it actually ends up being a higher priority, even though it's a large expense. So that's a huge pressure. Right. So you can't just say, we're not doing IE, we're not doing an OS before this time and things that make it much easier for development and cost. Yeah, you you have to serve those older browsers. It's yeah. not about, oh, we're just we're just not serving anything, you know, before IE10 anymore. You really have to um which makes software harder and bigger. And also people don't always understand some of the pressures from policy, you know, or, or how that system works. And so, you know, policy is another thing laid on top of all of this. Sometimes there's actually laws that say we can't do something or a particular technology decision was accidentally articulated in law that we didn't even realize. And so that's the way the software works is because the law text said we had to collect this or, you know, that sort of thing. 
So thank you for that background. And uh, with that being said, can you talk about your current work and what you're most interested in at the moment? Yeah. So right now, uh, by day, I'm a product manager for a company called BrightHive. It's a new startup that is selling data integration and microservices to states. So we come in and uh, we intend to build sort of a middleware layer on existing, you know, big vendor software and move that data out into a structured API that conforms with adopted data standards. And we can do really cool stuff with additive data services like, you know, link individuals with a machine learning tool from a jail and a homelessness services agency, create predicted matches between those. And so that in the long run, this this feeds into to these really well-adopted understandings of what we should be doing to improve this stuff, which is warm handoffs. You know, if we know somebody's being discharged from jail into homelessness, we want to reach out to a local caseworker, maybe associated with them. Um, but right now, the the technology and the infrastructure isn't there to do that kind of thing. And so what we're coming in is building these, these you know, lightweight, very secure services that comply with, you know, federal data security regulations, as well as this whole layer of ethics. So for us, you know, when we share that data, we're always constantly thinking about and working with our customers and partners what are the unintended consequences of the information? How do we convey the least amount to solve for this outcome? You know, so if an officer has someone in their custody, they can see that that person is being treated for mental health, but they can't see, you know, what they're being treated for or who their doctor is or how long they've been treating, that sort of stuff, so that they know, okay, I need to take this person to the mental health emergency room, not the drunk tank tonight. It's been pretty exciting. We, we line our work with policy. We were doing health for a long time, which is what I was in charge of as a product manager, but we're a new company. It, it turned out we'd spread ourselves a little too thin. So now we're really doubling down on workforce and looking at how do we implement the technology around a 2014 federal law called the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act uh, that ties funding for workforce development programs to positive outcomes um, later in life around hiring and wages. Yeah, and I think something you brought up is really interesting in light of recent developments in terms of data protection and for-profit, big Silicon Valley companies, especially Cambridge Analytica. It's interesting that you say government does have to think about things that perhaps were not held to for-profit companies, but there are people who do this. It's not like this is unknown, right? Yeah. So it's it's interesting because like when we walk into this space, you know, and we're dealing with staff from you know, a homelessness services organization, they know this stuff intuitively. And so our role, especially lately with, you know, all of these things happening is how do we help them communicate those boundaries verbally to, to other technical contractors or even our team? And how do we make sure that we can communicate and build these sorts of things into our process for developing technology? Because there's so much we can do with tech and there's you know, a lot of good intent, but, you know, just because you're experiencing homelessness doesn't mean you've lost the right to the privacy about that information. But that's the way, you know, especially in tech that we treat people who are experiencing homelessness. Oh, well, I want the data of all the service here, you know, so you calculate your, you know, your cost on the system. But, you know, that's not necessarily the right way to go about this. So when you, we look at the subject matter experts and, and we look at, you know, papers Often you'll notice when you're reading through this, oh, actually we had explicit permission for from 160 of these individuals in this program for primitive supportive housing to look at their their data, anonymize it, but link it and bring it into the study. And then there's note, there was 300 people, but we only focused 160 because we had explicit permission to use their data. And when we go into the tech world, that's not the way we think. 
And so how do we make sure that the subject matter experts in government and the agencies that are working with government can communicate that to a new tech company? And that stuff starts to become more explicit in conversations, in policy, and in you know the documentation around code. Yeah, I think that's a great point that, again, this, this is not unknown. We don't have to make this up as we go along. There are people who are familiar with this. They just aren't in for-profit tech company. And I'm wondering more about your background, if your background is in tech and you had to learn this going in, into civics or if you've always been in civic tech or... My story <laughs> is a little different. So I'm from North Florida. I was a smart kid, could have gone on to college, but I'd put all my eggs in a basket, uh, hoping to go to the Naval Academy and fly fighter jets. And when I lost faith in uh, sort of the military program after 9-11 and, and seeing sort of what was happening in the Middle East without sort of a clear understanding and, and the government sort of failing to communicate what was happening. Yeah, I kind of uh, dropped out of high school and started bartending and uh, got really involved in the local community that way. I hadn't really met most of the community, but working in a local dive bar, I met a lot of really cool people who got me engaged in the community in a new way. Um, so I ended up starting a nonprofit bicycle collective with some other kids and going to city council meetings, talking about bicycle and pedestrian issues. Then eventually I, I got a job. It was an internship and I came out to California to work as a field biologist because I was, I'd been studying in that same time that I was bartending and I dropped out of high school, but I've been taking some college classes in uh, Linux administration and IT. I was really frustrated with sort of like not being able to go outside and, and I had gotten a day administrative job for an organic certifier, but I really thought I wanted to be outside. And so I, I took this sort of stipend-based internship out in the deserts in California. A few years into working in biology and botany in Southern California, my bosses had picked up that I was pretty savvy with a computer, which uh, I thought was normal because just, you know, I had database classes in middle school. And, and when I grew up in the 80s, I got asked to, you know, write macros for access and clean up Excel spreadsheets and, you know, fix printers and phones, which weren't even computers at that point. And so I, I eventually sort of hit a wall because these organizations didn't have the money for the tech improvements. And, and I'm talking, this is really bad. Like, an Access 2000 database that's on a computer in the corner, not plugged in to the internet because they know there's a breaking change in Microsoft 2003 and they've already had to restore and they don't want to break their database. And all I had to do was go in and remove a couple of exclamation points from a SQL report. You know, then I could upgrade the system and plug it back in, but it, it had almost no backups and the backups were on tapes. And, you know, and this, this was 2010, you know? <laughs> Right. And they just, they started needing more and more that I wasn't really capable of doing. So I, I made the decision to to study computer science. And I, I came to LA, I enrolled in college in Santa Monica, taking computer science. And I got a student internship with the city of Santa Monica. I worked there for a year and a half on some really fun projects. I helped redo the planning website. You know, what I didn't know what I was doing at the time was user research, basically, mm -hmm. because I couldn't get the staff to write the content. They were really busy. What I started doing was I would just ask them for an hour on their calendar and, and interview them about their work. And then I would write their content for them and then have them edit it. And that works really well, you know, to help meet our deadlines. And my last project there was um, a pet project for the CIO for the city. And that was open data. And he's like, there's this thing, you know, uh, go figure out if, you know, how we should do this and why we should do this. Like, we think this is the way we want to go. And so, yeah, my last couple of months there, I, you know, met some local folks in Santa Monica who were trying to start a Code for America brigade. And I started meeting staff from other cities. I got a Twitter account. 
yeah, it, that was sort of the beginning of where I am now. I started studying programming at nights, got a job in a startup, nation builder for a year working on voter data. And then I spent a couple of years consulting locally uh, with another engineer from nation builder, building software for and websites for local nonprofits and governments. The idea that we're more aligned with some of these groups than the contractors they had been hiring. And so we could actually do a better job for less money than they could. So, you know, we both rode bicycles and Ciclavia approached us being like, hey, like, this is really cool. Like, you come to our events. We'd love for you to be the one to build our map. And last summer, I was approached by this new startup based out of Chicago that does data integration, not with open data necessarily, um, though there is some open data involved, but with this personally identifiable information and uh, uh, personal health information. Very different, you know, very secure, very private data sharing. So that's, that's where I am now. Wow, that's that's a great story of kind of how all these things come together, community and tech and hacking things together when it, things don't work. And were you part of starting the Code for America Brigade in Los Angeles? I wasn't. So oh, yeah, there was okay. there was two parallel things that happened here. There was uh, Yohei and Jeff in Santa Monica were two guys who worked at different local companies at Carbon5 and Coloft. And they had started a meetup group, which I found as an intern. And I just started emailing everybody who'd ever signed up as being interested. And so they they had a packed house. It was like more than 100 people showed up for the first meetup. And I think a lot of that was me just quietly like DMing people on Twitter I didn't know, being like, this is so cool. Um, and so they ran those for a while until they both moved on to other jobs. They called that code for Los Angeles. And then the summer before that happened, I think was the first Hack for LA hackathon, which was Catherine Generakis and Lily Cam. Uh, so I am Angel Foundation and, and Catherine did a lot of consulting for nonprofits on marketing. And she was on the digital team for Eric Garcetti when he got elected. And so this was sort of as mayor-elect, a way for him to sort of commit to this movement. Mm -hmm. And they got Code for America to help sponsor the first event. So it was a big hackathon in East LA. What year was this? 2013, I think. Okay. I'm trying to remember. I think 2013 was the first one. And so, yeah, Catherine and Lily brought some other people on and they, they were doing those. I met them haphazardly and they, around the same time I started Compiler, the consulting company, they had approached me about running that summer's event. So we took that on, and at the same time, a bunch of folks had gotten the old code for LA folks together who, who'd both taken jobs and left town, and so nobody was really running it, and the city just hired a new chief data officer, and they brought everybody in a room and was like, let's do this. There was like 12 of us there who'd done sort of different things, and we agreed to use the Hack for LA branding and do monthly events, and I just happened to be the person at that time. Uh, I said no, <laughs> but when it came down to it, we were getting really close to the deadline and I'd agreed to put my new company's name as a sponsor on this and support with like the website. And it turned out like people didn't have the time or the experience to really get that first event off the ground. So I ended up stepping up to do that. And yeah, I spent a year running pretty big events with Hack for LA um, from the bigger hackathons to we did a monthly panel series a whole new group has taken over, which is great. There's six or seven people who organize now, and I'm one of the advisors with okay. Catherine and Lily as well, who had started it way back when. Right. And they still have ongoing weekly hack nights. Yeah, they meet twice a week now, one in downtown and one in Santa Monica, and they have a couple of different project groups. And it's it's taken a very different tone now. They, they focus on building software and these quiet weekly events. When I was running it, with some of the same people, we realized that there was a little more like broader community education that was needed before we even could build stuff. And so that's why we had focused on panels and sort of facilitated discussions after panels was just to sort of begin to build that community and that network 
and you know raise our brand image. And so that's that was what was needed then. And and it's yeah transitioned into this new thing, which is great. There's some really cool projects they've done. One in particular has been taken over by a local nonprofit to run that ongoing, which is a, a food desert map uh, and community resources map for those areas. So people start projects in these hack nights, and then they hopefully can get bigger and go on to be independent projects? That's one good outcome. Personally, I'm really invested in seeing people kind of self-educate in the broader issue of civics and government and technology and apply to jobs in government. For me, that's that's been a huge win, watching you know people over the course of a year to you know just keep learning you know through the process of doing these projects and coming to events. Um, more about the problem who used to come in and be like, oh, government. And I was like, cool. Yeah, that girl sitting two chairs down from you who looks super cool. Yeah, she works for the government. That You know, we are the government yeah. and sort of like really encouraging people to see government in a in a very different light and really, you know, that sort of call to be part of that. So that's that's a huge outcome for me. We've seen people come up with ideas that have that have become companies, new companies, which is also very cool. And I'm a big fan of that happening, too. Well, there's a lot of the perception that government is bureaucratic, it's too slow, they don't know what they're doing, they need to be more like business. Obviously, that's big in the last election. Yeah. We, we need a business people to run this. And I think once you dive in, though, it's not like, oh, I'm going to come in and fix this. Like, there's a lot of big reasons. Why, yeah, and a lot of those sort of complaints are true, but also so much isn't understood of, of why those things are true. And and government is slow for a reason. You know, we want institutions to change slowly when we deal with these big issues. But we've sort of fallen out of sync over time with a lot of these institutions don't have the capacity to look forward anymore. And I think that's sort of the end game for civic tech right now is, is how do we shift that back again so that, you know, we are thinking, you know, 100 years into the future, what kind of communities do we want to have? You know, the the way universities and used to plant a tree. So in in a hundred years, when when the main beam and the main hall is starting to fall apart, this tree will be big enough to replace it. You know, we, we don't think like that as institutions right now. And it's it's a bandwidth. It's we can dive into the history of of what's happened and what's caused us to to end up in this place. But there is still so much good intent. There's so many people working above and beyond their capacity in government and bringing people into that reality and being like, yeah, there's there's problems, but we can tackle them together and government is not an other, you know, it's your neighbor down the street who works for the city and, and you didn't even realize that. Can you think of things that work and maybe don't work about civic tech, having been involved with it over the years? Like I think of like hackathons or sometimes <laughs> promoted and it's this big one day event. And personally, as someone who works in tech, I, I can never work like that. Personally, uh, I also can't. <laughs> Maybe that world is is growing or, or moving or evolving. And I didn't know if you had any thoughts about things you've seen work in terms of, of raising awareness and maybe starting projects, getting them off the ground, but things that are also maybe taken from tech that aren't as great or yeah. just any thoughts around that? So I think let's just dive into hackathons. I ran a huge hackathon in 2015 with 700 people at the Department of Water and Power one of my personal motivations for doing that was so that when people later came to me for advice or wanted me to run a hackathon, I could say no, okay. and they would listen. Because I, I think the challenge with hackathons isn't that hackathons are bad, it's that we try to solve problems with hackathons that hackathons aren't the right tool for. It's really about a whole ecosystem. Hackathons are great for getting attention of new people, 
it's really great to see, you know, design in that space. Like, can we introduce people to new things? Can we think through problems? But trying to like tie money to like building software hasn't really worked well in civic tech because you get a lot of people who, you know, have only experienced their own problems. And so you see a lot of young white men build parking apps. And that's not really, you know, a hackathon is a ton of work, tons of prep, tons of money goes into that. And if that's our outcome, we've we failed. But a lot of times, if we're asking ourselves earlier, why do we want to run a hackathon? Oh, we want to build a community. Is there another thing we can do that costs less to do the same thing? And so that's where data and donuts locally came from. The idea is that people were throwing around this idea of a hackathon for for county employees, but when we started looking at this as, is this the right tool? We're like, a lot of these folks, they have to go home after work to kids or other obligations. Many of them haven't even experienced a networking event before in their job professionally. And you know, when we're looking at the experience for a broader population, as a woman, as a person of color, like these aren't welcoming events. Is this really the direction we want to go? And so we're like, okay, why do we want to do this again? Oh, we want to really really build community horizontally throughout, you know, government agencies with folks who who do similar work on different projects in, in different silos. So we're like, cool, well, let's buy some donuts, let's bring a speaker in, get some people together. And so that it's been a year now and we've really seen that happen with, you know, it's a little bit of staff time from the city and county to plan those each month and pick an internal speaker. And then, you know, somebody buys donuts and coffee and and it's really like getting that familiarization with each other's face. It's a comfortable space. You don't feel like you shouldn't be there because you're not tech savvy enough, which is a hurdle we see with hackathons. People don't feel like they can contribute, even though they might be, you know, a phenomenal subject matter expert. They're like, oh, well, I'm not a programmer. I shouldn't go. But with a tech talk, you don't feel that way. And so that we were really able to to create that community. And now we have an email list, you know, of over 500 people who come to these events we're really interested in data and technology within government. And, and a huge percentage of those people are government employees. And so for us, the next stage with that is, okay, we've been doing this for a while. We'll build this community. What does this community need? And so hopefully this fall, you'll see us launch uh, a two-day training workshop, you know, really open to that community that had we offered those same trainings a year ago, I think it would have been harder to find the right attendees or design the right content for them. Yeah, I think that's great to hear that there is this desire to look at different kinds of events and also just the long haul. And I think that's what sometimes is missing from a one-day event. But I've, they've done some great stuff. Hacker Fund does them with high schoolers, and then they try to bring in some hack friendly mm-hmm. folks to, to introduce the idea of civics. But mm-hmm. they have a very different goal and a very different audience, right. and that's why hackathons work for them. Yeah, I think it's also interesting you brought up the point of like parents, there is this focus on tech events, networking events. It's like, oh, yeah, at nights, weekends. Yeah. Or, and it does keep out people who have jobs at night, who have families. And uh, and when you are talking about really bringing in different kinds of people. Looking at the community, we, we wanted to complement, you know, the hack nights that were already happening, mm-hmm. occasional civic tech happy hours. We're like, you know, what can we do to reach some of these same people who who can't go to those events or won't go to those events? And and that's how we're like, oh, cool, getting an hour off work in the morning for a work event is something that audience can do. So let's let's go there. Yeah. Speaking of which, do you have thoughts or advice even for people getting into civic tech? Because I think your store is inspiring because it's so eclectic <laughs> and it's, it's not what you traditionally think of as very elite, like 
you've got a master's at this prestigious university and did academic papers. And um, at the same time, yeah, it's I'm trying to think of, of how people can get into that space, especially from different kinds of backgrounds, which seem really valuable for civic tech. I think it's the same with any career. It's it's about understanding the space and who you are and what you want to do and looking for those events first. You know, is there something in your community you can go to? What can you find on the internet? 18F's blog is an amazing resource to start to understand, you know, what's possible in government and change. You can apply to work for government, which which is a whole nother challenge. You know, the, the way government hiring works is incredibly different. But as a programmer, you know, there's dozens of jobs available right now in the city of LA, but they're not recruited in the same way. They're listed as, I think, analysts, which, you know, if you're a software engineer, you don't, you don't look for an analyst job. There's stuff you can do about educate yourself about what are the jobs, you know, in government, what are the jobs in for-profit in this space, in nonprofit in this space, and starting to go to those events and understanding, you know, am I interested in a particular subject matter area? Do I care about homelessness? Oh, I should learn what a continuum of care is. Are they hiring? How do they get work done? You know, what kind of software do they use? And really just do a landscape analysis for yourself. Understand what your skills are, what your issue areas are. I remember to listen, I think is the hardest lesson at first for some folks when they come in, which is like, oh, I'm going to fix this. Getting in is easy, but there's so many different places and it's so broad. I'm always a huge advocate for getting people to work in government. I don't because I don't have a bachelor's, which, which is a, another kind of challenge. Uh, most government positions require, most civil service positions require a, at least a bachelor's degree. Yeah, I think that's a challenge because it's also often a degree in the thing you're doing. So I know programming positions, you have to have a computer science, like a certain amount of units in computer science. And it's it's different. It's very they're, different. They're changing some of that, which is getting okay, better. Um, but there are, yeah, often sometimes a requirement. And then you have to like go in and take the, the written test and get on this like list and the new jobs get sent to you. And, and the process of get hiring takes months. And some people also just don't have that. But if it's something you can do on your spare time, it is begin that process. But yeah, knowing, you know, what those barriers are to working in government. Like for me, oh, I can't work for government in civil service position. That's okay. I feel great about contributing to this for-profit company who builds, you know, this tech and a lot of that for me is, is you know, it's open source technology. I like our pricing strategy and, and the way I think we charge a very fair rate competitively. And so that works for me. But yeah, it's, it's really about what do you want to do? What feels good for you? I like the flexibility of working remote. Government job wouldn't give me that. Mm-hmm. So it's, unless it's 18F, you know, and that's, that's a whole nother boat. It's a shining exception to most of the rules uh, in government and civic tech these days. I also wanted to go into some of the specifics in terms of how financing works differently, how salaries are different in terms of for-profit tech and government tech startups. If you want to talk about either how those are financed in a big way or how it affects individual workers in terms of pay level. Looking at government pay is great. It's really transparent. You can know well in advance you know, what you'll make, what the max you can make over the course of your career is. If you apply to a federal job, it's got a classification and you can look at, you know, what's the pay scale for this job? And that pay scale might change based on what city you're in. Locally in LA, because of the cost of living here, what you'd make as a civil staffer is much higher than, say, you'd make in a small city in North Florida. It's almost twice as much. You can look up those numbers. You can have a good understanding. You can know. For-profit is all over the map. So it's, they have more flexibility 
that's not always a good thing. And so you have to remember that a lot of that is private. You see a lot more challenges in pay disparities between genders and races that aren't being addressed in the same way they are in government with that has a really transparent pay schedule. I make $90,000 a year working for a for-profit company as my first year as a product manager. That's less than market, but I knew that going in. And for me, it was really about fit with this company. I thought there was a lot of opportunity for me to have a voice and grow and do some good here. And they're based out of Chicago. So they're you know, the way they set expectations for salary is very different than a company that's based out of the Silicon Valley with exorbitant rents. Yeah. Chicago is a little cheaper. So yeah. that's sort of where they're going. Nonprofits, a whole nother boat, same problems as for profit. I think CEO scales are public by law when you file taxes as nonprofits. But for the rest of the company, you see those same problems with race and gender and flexibility and how people are paid and what they're paid. And some of that's based on geography or how well connected they are to their funding and that sort of stuff. Because something I've found sort of broader in terms of public service and nonprofit, you feel pride in the work or you you get this non-monetary value. And because of that, because of, you know, challenges with getting funding and grants, the, the pay is lower in general. You see that everywhere. So, yeah. yeah, you see it in government rarely, but you see it in government, you see it in nonprofits, you see it in for-profit companies, especially in startups. You see almost a cult mindset where people mm-hmm. become really, really bought in and subscribe to this idea of a particular vision for change. At the same time, you see people go into that space because they want stock in a company because that company's going to sell and they're one of the first employees and in a couple of years or 10 years, you know, they'll be a millionaire when that company sells. So there's a lot of really strange personal motivations in the space and people use those motivations to make decisions, you know, with your executive member coming in early you might take a really low pay for a lot of shares in a company, which in the long run is going to make you more money, but but there's a high risk there. And if you come from a certain socioeconomic background, you can't afford to take risk. You know, mm-hmm. if you don't have parents or savings, or that's a very different picture. And so that increases some of those striations too, using some of those alternative methods of compensation and, and going for that. There's this altruistic method to work somewhere. Um, I've seen nonprofits abuse that. Actually, I worked for someone who was illegally reporting the way we were paid so we wouldn't get overtime on $12 an hour. And so that they could underbid government contracts a certain way. And that was miserable. But there was tons of applicants because there were so many young folks in who wanted to work in biology who wanted to make a difference in the world that they could take advantage of that. And they weren't getting called out on that because we knew there was they'd get 30 applications the next day if we left or got fired. Thank you for talking about it. I think it's true that it's a lot of it's a lot of decisions to weigh. I, I think with all of this, you know, teaching yourself to be aware mm-hmm. of those forces is the the best thing you can do to combat them. You know, when I was working for that nonprofit paying twelve dollars an mm-hmm. hour and having us illegally re- reformat the way we reported our hours, I was really young and I didn't know a lot about this stuff. And I didn't know what was or wasn't legal and and I had a lot harder time finding a job because I was younger and, and experienced and so I was right. An easy target uh, in a lot of ways because I, I had no idea. But I would also argue sometimes my direct supervisors were in a similar boat. They didn't really know yeah. that this wasn't good. <laughs> it was just sort of the only thing they'd ever known. Right. It does feel like if you are in a certain sector or certain industry, you don't see, it's like a fish doesn't see water, right? Like if, if you're used to a certain mentality or a certain way of Or doing it, it happens slowly. You know, look at, right. 
you know, you're in a bad job for too long, but, you know, you don't see things because it happens slowly or, yeah, it's, was it frog in a pot of boiling water? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So in addition to your job at Bright Hive, you also have a project called Policy Clip. Can you talk about that? Policy Club is a personal project of myself, uh, Hunter Owens, and Juan Lopez. Uh, So we get together when we can. And our idea is is that we've all spent a lot of time working um, either in government or for for for-profit, nonprofits in this this civic tech space. And we saw ourselves inheriting a lot of constraints in technology that were implicit in policy. So things that had you know, someone experienced with technology been at the table when that um, little piece of policy was drafted, they would have pointed out, if we change this, it'll reduce the amount of time to implement this software or the amount of money it's going to cost to implement this. And so do we want to compromise in that way? We decided that we wanted to jump into policy and and look at policy, which is sort of this weird, crazy, haphazard, who knows who, who's personally interested in what and who's on the staff of, of this elected is what's priorities. Some of it's reactionist to what's happening. It's why we're seeing so many housing bills in California right now. But we really wanted to get involved, particularly at the state level, and take a look at policy at this level of data, ethics, and technology. What are we doing You know, with ACLU advocating for cash bail reform? They're suggesting replacing it with software that would show a judge the, the likeliness of someone to run. But we know from experience with that kind of software and those algorithms and machine learning, if you're training it on historical arrest databases, you're increasing the human bias against Blacks in our community because we have, as humans, arrested more Blacks. So when you feed that data into a computer system, it only exponentially increases that. So there's an incredible article by ProPublica who dives into a closed source for-profit software that create sentencing recommendations. State of Florida uses it that really highlights, you know, what could go wrong in software where, you know, the intent was good. Like, can we outsource this to a computer to reduce bias when we hadn't really looked at it at the policy level and understood what those complications were? And so it becomes a software contract, you know, with that goal isn't communicated, that intent of writing of that law isn't communicated or required at the procurement level. And so this company just it works. It does what it, it creates a prediction. It's it maps to historical data. It meets the letter of the contract. But what we hadn't realized is that we increase the bias in our communities. But we'd started with good intent. So policy club is is that we want to prevent that sort of thing happening by getting involved further upstream. Because a lot of us have been working around these sort of procurement and post procurement, you know, fixing systems that are broken. But we're like, what if we start looking at this, you know, way further up the stream? And so what we've done so far is a little bit of data analysis on some of the housing laws that are being proposed in California, because another aspect for us is making better decisions about what policy to pass. So for example, you know, there's, this law is really well-intentioned, but we can predict the impact it'll have. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to take millions of dollars to implement this law, but it's, it's only going to have this minor impact versus this other law which didn't seem like it was going to be big of an impact when we've modeled it, is having a larger impact. So let's focus on passing laws like this. And then also, once they're passed, can we measure them? Are we meeting these things? You know, What are the challenges? By looking at data and, and when a policy is passed, making sure that there's some consideration of, of how do we measure this change? Because uh, a lot of that's not happening. So there's a few years ago, there was a law passed that said savings from not arresting 
folks for minor drug charges had to be moved into prevention efforts. But what we didn't do was call for a system to track people who weren't being arrested. Because if we don't arrest them, we don't take any data. So we didn't know that we were making a lot of guesses. And so there's a lot of folks really looking back at, can we look at arrests and see if there's a change and, and guess how much money should be moved or if any money should be moved. But when we wrote that law, we didn't really think through like, you know, we were like, oh, well, we'll just move the money. But we're like, wait, but how will we know what to move, how much to move? And so we want to look at things from that perspective. Yeah. So it almost sounds like some of the processes that made software development better, even moving that a bit upstream. So it's not just waterfall of, yeah. <laughs> of a policymaker makes a policy and now you have to implement it. And there are contractors who'll say, whatever bad idea comes our way, they'll you pay us money, we'll implement it. Yeah. Right? And often these are really good ideas. And it's just sort of pointing out right. like... Not, not bad ideas. These, these are the constraints that you've right. accidentally imposed. So for example, with 827, uh, which was recently all over the internet and, and the news, the law had proposed changing minimum heights on development based on a street width in a certain area. And so streets is, is a really common GIS data layer we have for pretty much the entire world now, but we have a very detailed data set for that in the state of California. One of the proposed changes was going to look at frontages of properties, but we don't necessarily have that as a consistent data set. So even though the intention was very good and that we had you know, the, the studies and the papers and, and from these planners that showed that was a better way to decide height, that's not a data set we have. And so communicating that to the people who are writing this law being like, yes, that's better, but we don't have that data. Are you okay with that? Which means we can't you know, quickly calculate this law, potential impacts, and can't quickly respond to permits. So either, you know, our suggestions coming in where the, the kinds of suggestions we'd like to start making are, hey, this data doesn't exist, you should go back to streets and maybe write in the law that we're going to collect this data and in, in 2020, we're going to switch from streets to frontages. Mm -hmm. And that gives local jurisdictions a, a certain, or the state a certain amount of time to be accountable for having that data. And so the same thing, we think recommendations for data standards. AB 1755 was the Open Water Data Act. Super cool. Didn't do anything other than say, this state agency is going to be in charge of standards and they're going to develop them by then, this certain time that would facilitate sharing of data faster because there's a lot of complications in sharing water data. So it also it sounds like sort of how technologists always had subject matter experts to inform their work. It's almost going the other way, right? Like where technologists can inform policymakers as to the real repercussions of what they're talking about. Yeah. Uh, so we see this ideally in, in my head eventually becoming the sort of thing where right now there's a team that reviews proposed legislation for conflicts with the state constitution. Mm -hmm. We'd like somebody or a team who's reviewing that for data privacy, data ethics, you know, and complications in technology. So stuff like that, can we start requiring, you know, public algorithms, open source software, open standards at the policy level? There's a balance to be struck too. We don't want to be overly prescriptive because, you know, policy doesn't change that often. So, you know, what if we wrote the text of the standard in the law? Oh no, well, that's a problem because we probably want to change the format of this data. We want to make sure we don't too tightly couple some of this stuff with the law, but start to, to, to better prepare for those things. Well, great. Well, thank you for talking about that. I think I just want to finish up by getting your thoughts on kind of the state of technology or what, or the state of civics and how the kind of work you do in the civic tech world can inform 
or you hope might inform how we think about technology, how we think about civic involvement? So on a bigger, (laughs) broader, scarier picture, some really unpleasant things have happened recently with the Trump election and populism and Cambridge Analytica. But one of the things I've seen that's that's been pretty incredible in response is sort of this sustained engagement from everyone around me. So before, you know, pre-post elections, you know, big issues, you'd see somebody like, you know, rally for something, get involved in something. But we're seeing, you know, so many records being broken right now with the number of women running for office, the number of the amount of money that it's being raised by first-time candidates, the number of people registering to vote, you know, and for me, that's that's amazing. So that's sort of the way I see things going now is that that all the information is out there and I'm really excited that we're we're kind of going through this, you know, nationwide crisis of conscience and and involvement and people are getting getting more involved in in what happens in a way I've never really seen before. The the second part of that which I'm personally really excited about is people becoming more aware of their own footprint, you know, digitally with what's happening with Cambridge Analytica, people really starting to understand, oh, when I click on this Facebook survey, they're now collecting data on me permanently. When before it was, it was you'd, you'd see very smart people still doing this, you know, still, you know, they'd post their quiz results and I'm like, oh no, like, I know what, you know, these these are meant to fish for your data and and they seem innocuous, but they're not. And and starting to see people who are, who are like really intuitively aware of these issues in data um, and their own private data is is great. And I think that bodes all sorts of things for the future of technology when, you know, Facebook is losing members at a rate it never has before. That's crazy. Yeah, sometimes it takes, it takes a crisis to understand what's happening. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the work you do in, our, in this city and beyond. And thank you, Vicki, for sharing your story. Be sure to check out the episode webpage at thenewconstructivist.org for show notes, including links to Vicki's work, Back for LA, and how to find public sector tech work. Thanks for listening.